Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. Seventy-five years ago, the United States became the only country to use atomic bombs in war. From the New Mexico test through the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 1945 ushered in a new normal. In his book, The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, Author Greg Mitchell chronicles the making of the first Hollywood film meant to show the development of the nuclear weapon. The book was published in 2020 by The New Press. In our talk, he reviews how MGM developed the movie, as well as how the military and the White House were involved to present a completely positive view of the Manhattan Project and the bombings of Japan. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Mitchell. Welcome, Greg. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much. Now, I've interviewed a number of authors who have reviewed the making of a particular film, and I always find those types of books fascinating because you get background information that you probably never knew. The difference, though, is most of the time when there's a book like that, the movies are generally well-known or at least heard of. But your book discusses a film that most people have never even seen. Along with many other books you've uh, on politics and other topics, you've written about the Atomic Age in the past, particularly as it relates to popular culture. Now, your new book discusses a post-war film that was meant to present the Manhattan Project and the Japan bombings in a positive light. But before we get into it in detail, can you give us a brief description of what the beginning or the end the film itself is? Uh, okay, well, uh, you know, it ended up as a, I guess what I call in the book, sort of pro-bomb propaganda. Uh, and I, I guess I could start by describing that, but it might make more sense to talk about how it started out and then build up to what it ended up as, which is, of course, what the book does. So, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, the just a little bit of history, because I know some people are are not so up on it. This is the 75th anniversary um, in July, mid-July, the first testing of the atomic bomb. And then August 6th, the first use of the bomb against uh, well, against anyone uh, in Hiroshima, and then three days later against Nagasaki. Um, so that's what the 75th anniversary is all about. Um, and so the book is timed to that. Now, the book is not, um, you know, ostensibly about that, uh, the decision to use the bomb or all the, the usual controversial things. It, it, it really starts... Uh, with the when the movie started, which was um, kind of oddly but entertainingly, uh, as, as I hope the entire book is, um, with a letter to the famous actress, young actress then Donna Reed, who uh, was about to appear in uh, she'd had some small roles um, previously, um, 
but she was about to appear up here in what became one of her most famous roles, which was uh, it's, a, it's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Um, and then a little after that, she appeared in uh, From Here to Eternity, where she won an Oscar. So she was very much up and coming then, but not not very not all that well known. And uh, in October of 1945, she got a letter at her home in uh, Santa Monica. Uh, this is two months after the atomic bombing from her old high school chemistry teacher, uh, a young guy named Ed Tompkins. So I think it's kind of hinted they both they, they sort of had a mutual crush on each other, perhaps in high school, uh, not uh, consummated uh, in any way. But um, and she got a letter from him and she had been odd because he had been very influential in her her, her, uh, her development um, uh, back in Iowa. Uh, and, and then he kind of disappeared. And suddenly she got a letter from him and found out that he actually had, had been disappeared into the Manhattan Project uh, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And uh, so he sent her a letter asking her to see if she could get a Hollywood movie made that would warn the world about the uh, concerns of the atomic scientists who had worked on the bomb and, and maybe were not too too thrilled that it was used against people instead of being uh, held back as a threat, um, and we're mainly concerned with the direction of the future of uh, atomic weapons, uh, a nuclear arms race with the Soviets, uh, building new and bigger weapons, all the dangers we've, we've seen in the nuclear age. Uh, and so he, he had sort of an urgent letter for her to try to get that hap happen. That to happen. Now, um, fortunately, her she was married to a Hollywood agent named Tony Owen, and he had great friends among producers and, you know, trying to make a long story short here, but he, he, he hooked up with a, a well-known producer named Sam Marks who, at MGM, who actually I interviewed for a previous book years ago. Um, and Sam Marks and Tony Owen took it to Louis B. Mayer, the famous head of MGM. Louis B. Mayer thought it was a tremendous idea, said it would be the most important movie he ever made, said he would, uh, you know, have a big budget. Uh, and set in motion the uh, you know the hiring of a screenwriter. Uh, Sam Marks went to Oak Ridge, talked to the scientists, and um, uh, the basic thrust of all this is to say that the film started as a plea from the scientists, a plea for uh, controls on the nuclear weapons, uh, raising concerns about the use of the bomb against Japan. Um, uh, and that was the pure inspiration for the movie. Uh, and then the book shows over the following year how that impetus was completely turned back, uh, changed 360 degrees or 180 degrees, uh, I should say, um, after intervention from the Pentagon, from the military, from Leslie Groves, who was the general in, in charge of the Manhattan Project, and from President Truman himself. So it basically tells... Uh, over the course of a year, how the movie was transformed radically after uh, others got involved and the scientists got kind of pushed aside. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually made sure to watch the film yesterday. I was actually. It's it's out there, people. Not it's not as hard to find it if you're willing to do a little bit of digging. So I did watch it yesterday. And, well, it's on DVD. It is right. finally on DVD now, and Turner Classics uh, owns it, and they right. air it every so often. Right. So um, in watching it, 
it's basic. This this structure. It's it's as as you point out. It's it's a Hollywood film, MGM. It is just such an interesting way of setting it up. They want to make you almost believe that this was the actual, almost a dro- document. I mean, excuse me, documentary. Even though it ends up being a docudrama in any way. Right. Of course. I mean, when they started with an, a fake newsreel. Uh, to make you think, okay, well, you're now going to see this, this this movie that everybody's going to, you know, and we're going to put it in a time capsule for the 24th, you know, 2400s or 2500s, and but we're going to let you see it as well so you know what happened. And so obviously we're led to believe through this film that this is supposed to represent what actually happened from the Manhattan Project to the decisions and to actually using the bomb. So... But when did you first see the movie? I mean, obviously, this is something that you wrote a book about. So the right. question is, when did it first come on your radar? And what led you to decide that this was uh, definitely a film worth writing about? Right. Um, well, I, I've been involved with nuclear issues. Uh, I mean, I grew up, I'm a child of the 50s and 60s. So you could say I've been involved going back for my entire life. Uh, uh through the, uh, all the nuclear scares of the 50s and 60s and so forth. But um, I became really involved with this issue more closely uh, in 1982 when I became the editor of uh, what was then a, a leading magazine uh, in New York called Nuclear Times, covering nuclear issues. Uh, and I got to go on a grant to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I wrote <clears throat> excuse me, numerous articles for you know the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times and all sorts of prominent places. I still didn't know about this movie, I don't think. Um, and then when I was um, I was writing a book with Robert J. Lifton, uh, the well-known uh, writer called Hiroshima in America for the 50th anniversary in 1995, um, I learned more about this movie and uh, was able to, I think Turner sent me a, sent me a VHS or some, some sort of version of it I could watch and read a lot about it. And um, so I put a few paragraphs about it in that previous book. Um, but it you know, kind of remained on my radar ever since. And uh, you know, I've always wanted to write more about it and uh, learn more about it and uh, do more research and, and so on and so forth. Just you know, so over the years, I would occasionally write about it. Um, uh, I found out, for example, which we can talk about later if you want, uh, where Ayn Rand uh, wrote a competing script for Paramount. Um, and so there were revelations like that I learned as time went on. Um, and then I just was able to, you know, a couple of years ago, get a contract to write a, a ball, an entire book on this, uh, on this film. So it's something that, um, you know, I've learned more and more about over the years. And then in the past uh, year or two, I did extensive research that no one's ever done on this film at the Motion Picture Academy in L.A. Uh, with the papers from Robert Oppenheimer, from Leslie Groves, from others involved in the shaping of this movie or the gutting of this movie, sabotaging of this movie, if you will. Um, and um, and other other many other papers and sources around the country, FBI surveillance. There's a good deal in the book on the FBI surveillance of Oppenheimer and Albert Einstein and Theo Zillard. Um, so that was all new research. Um, so it's been a subject I've been interested in in a long time and it's just kind of built until now this, uh, uh, you know, major book release, I guess you'd say. 
Let's talk about this post-war period, though, because it's. A, I know when when victory when the Germans um, and the Axis uh, um, surrendered, there was this incredible outpouring of happiness and relief. But even though people were happy the, the, when the Japanese surrendered, it wasn't exactly the same, was it? There were issues related partly and on much of it because of the use of the atomic bomb to right. end the war. What was the right. mood like in the country in that period of time right afterwards? Well, there was great relief and celebration, as one can imagine. Uh, there was also high anxiety because of this dangerous new weapon. Um, and, um, you know, while it's true that, uh, you know, polls showed that most Americans and certainly most in the media at that time approved the use of the bomb, that they were not particularly concerned at that time with, um, uh, you know, wiping out Hiroshima and Nagasaki, although that was partly because they were not told the, the full truth about what happened to the people there. Um, but nevertheless, there was uh, certainly a sense of, of, uh, of great, great relief and, and happiness over, the, over that, but uh, mixed with the dangers of the bomb, because the bomb, although it was uh, written about or, and talked about on radio, uh, often in a positive way, you know, it helped win the war and uh, and all that. Um, there also was a, a great uh, focus on uh, what this could mean for the future. Obviously, other countries potentially could develop it. Uh, the U.S. could become a target. Uh, the entire world could be, you know, in, in flames because of this new weapon. So people were understandably worried, and there was great... Uh, you know, great concern, and and that great concern threatened the future development of nuclear weapons. The U.S. was already bent on uh, building more and bigger weapons, and now they didn't get the H bomb, the hydrogen bomb, for a few years, but uh, it was already being developed then. Um, and we wanted to stay ahead of the Russians. There was, you know, fear that Russia could get the bomb, um, although Truman had his doubts, um, and. Um, so it, it was almost, almost you might say, behind the scenes. There was a way of um, any of this uh, concern about uh, the future of uh, the world with uh, in a world of nuclear weapons. Uh, any concern about maybe we shouldn't have dropped it on uh, over two cities. This was all, um, you know, a threat to the what the, the nuclear narrative, if you will. Um, and so. Um, that's one reason that the MGM movie, although it didn't turn out to be, you know, boffo at box office, um, was you know, was sort of meant eventually to kind of sustain this nuclear narrative. Um, it's also why, and this is another subject that's covered pretty widely in the book, John Hersey's famous uh, New Yorker article, Hiroshima, and book that followed, which was an absolute national sensation. Um, you know, and some people today still call it the greatest journalistic article of the century. Um, but it was seen as a great, uh, also a great threat to this nuclear narrative. And so, um, as the book shows, um, the establishment uh, uh, mobilized to get an answering article, which was written by the former Secretary of War Stimson for Harper's, which uh, 
then had as much effect as, as Hersey's article in swinging the pendulum back in favor of the bomb, you might say. So these, you know, these two major cultural events, uh, you might say, uh, book by Hersey and then the backlash to that and the MGM movie, uh, and then how that got, got twisted in the end, uh, we're strong examples of the, what this this uh, tug of war over the nuclear narrative, and then eventually, uh, after this Harper's article and the the the, uh, the beginning or the end film coming out and in uh, early 1947, kind of settled the question for decades. You know, it was sort of like the, the future of nuclear weapons was very much in doubt, and then. It, the public got, you know, got settled, uh, settled down, and you know, uh, maybe fear of the Soviets started to take over. Anti-communism, the McCarthyism, uh, all those other concerns uh, rose, and we settled into this um, you know, incredibly costly and dangerous uh, nuclear arms race for for decades. And of course, we still have, uh, for example, 5,500 warheads in our <laughs> arsenal today are ready to be launched. So, um, you know, the story is not over yet. You talk early on, and this is part of the whole um, impetus for the for the film in the first place, as you pointed out earlier, Edward Tompkins, uh, who was working at Outridge, contacted Donna Reed, which it's always interesting when you can bring a well-known name into something like this because obviously she had nothing else to do with the film. She wasn't in it or anything. Right. But right. it is funny that, uh, funny, peculiar in a way, that she becomes involved right at the beginning. Um, but the scientists, after, and it comes through actually in the film, as colored as the film is towards one side, there are attempts to occasionally put in things that the scientists say, although one can argue that the, the way they were presented weren't necessarily in the best light all the right. time. But what were the views of many of the scientists, and in fact, why did Tompkins feel like this was an important thing to do based on his own views and the views of many others that were involved in the planning on, on the scientific side? Yeah. Well, for some of them, um, there was probably a, a some measure of guilt um, that they had been working on a weapon that was eventually used against people. Uh, certainly Oppenheimer felt, a, felt that way. Oppenheimer, of course, was all over the map on that question. But um, I mean, so there was part of it might have a small measure of guilt, but I think mainly they, you know, they, like most scientists, were uh, extremely enthusiastic and proud to be working on a new invention on you know, that aspect of it, to pull off this incredible um, accomplishment. Um, but once that's done, and, and maybe not being fully aware uh, throughout that this was really a military, uh, going to be a munitions project, as, it, as, they, as it's often put, um, they then say, no, I don't want to do it. I don't think we should be doing this anymore. Uh, and certainly we don't, we don't think we should be doing uh, larger uh, versions of this. Um, so, um, you know, that really was a warning for the future. They, they could see where this was heading. And, and so they, you know, they just honestly were uh, concerned and they, you know, they formed national organizations. All of the weapons sites had their own activist groups. They formed a national uh, off 
office in Washington, which became known as the Federation of American Scientists, um, lobbied, you know, lobbied Congress, lobbied the White House, pushing what, what some called a one world concept, which was um, to, to try to form some kind of world controls of the, the atom uh, uh, nuclear stockpiles. Um, uh, you know, this, this was called One World. It was sort of was, was a little misleading in a way because we already had the United Nations, but it was a way of, of trying to, to say we need global controls uh, over this uh, before it's going to get out of hand. And um, so it was very idealistic. It did have a, you know, a program. People like Einstein were always writing about it and talking about it. Um, uh, they, you know, they had the most, the most prominent scientists on board. Um, but you know, like I said, that this this fervor, once a year and a half passed, um, passed among the media and the public, and the scientists then were kind of, you know, out to dry, and so they started. Some of them then went to work on the hydrogen bomb, others uh, went into other pursuits. But um, um, certainly, they had uh, an idealistic purpose and. Contacting Donna Reed and doing all these other things, and of course, some of them, including Oppenheimer, pretty much gets not pretty much he does he gets completely um, destroyed. You know, career his career is destroyed because of over time as as the FBI and 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 the various congressional committees and other committees come after him and um, gets a, he loses his security clearance and basically it just puts him into you know, getting out of being out of it completely over time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, then when Donna Reed's husband, as you mentioned, he was an agent, he was able to get um, interest pretty quickly, which in a way seemed interesting. It seems a little interesting that they would jump so much. But as you say, at the time period that this was going on, it was still so important and newsworthy that they clearly felt that it was worth trying to do something with this. And even early on, it just seemed like in your book that uh, that they talked as if they really were going to work with the scientists or try to work with the scientists yeah. at the beginning. Um, so... Obviously, the film itself is pretty it's chronological once it gets going, and it goes all the way back to supposedly when Albert Einstein wrote the letter to FDR saying we need to do something about it and mm-hmm. moving forward. So there's a lot of the major things that we know now happened in the film as far as things. But who, when did they develop the basic storyline? I mean, where did uh, the script get to a point where we knew that this, when the film had the structure, it was going to go with well, that happened over time. I mean, you, you mentioned, for example, the uh, kind of hokey uh, opening where they they bury a time capsule and, and all this, and you're seeing the film that was buried in the time capsule. That was added much later, um, so that was not in the original. But the original idea was to do a docudrama that would go back to the you know the splitting of the atom and FDR ordering the you know beginning of the project and. And going through the various um, advances and uh, the uh, building of Los Alamos and the, the creation of the bomb out there and the first test and and so forth. Um, so that was pretty much a straight line. It's just uh, you know Sam Marks, the producer, wrote the first kind of uh, treatment, brief treatment. Uh, they then gave it 
uh, they then hired a screenwriter named Frank Weed, who was uh, a very famous um, a former um, uh, fly, military flyer. Um, and actually, his story was later to, was told in a, a movie starring John Wayne as Frank Weed. Um, he had been a screenwriter for a few years, and uh, but he, you know, he had certainly a pro-military slant. So that kind of tipped their hand a bit at the beginning. Uh, they MGM had the pick of directors, really, according to Louis B. Mayer, but they ended up hiring uh, Frank Torog, who was a uh, you know I wouldn't say a hack, but he was, was Norman not a, Norman Torog. I'm sorry, uh, who was not uh, you know among the front front rank of directors, and he later became famous by directing the most. Elvis Presley movies that anyone did. Um, so it was a kind of odd because uh, rather quickly they were going away from what what might have what the scientists might have wanted and expected. Uh, but the crucial turning point was when they uh, gave basically gave script approval and uh, what was then an enormous amount of money, ten thousand dollars to Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project. And um, uh, essentially, he was given uh, you know, veto power over anything in the script, and uh, which the science, scientists did not have. Also, they met with uh, President Truman and essentially gave him approval, uh, which he later exercised also. So basically, the scientists, after kind of holding sway for a brief time, were then more marginalized, and the real people who would then have, uh, you know, the strongest influence on the script were uh, the military and the White House, and so the die was was kind of cast at that point. Yeah, there are a number of newsreel and other kind of interviews with Leslie Groves, the real person, that you can go back and see pretty easily. So it was interesting to see him portrayed in the film. I mean, you do get a little bit of sense that he was a bigger man and things like that, but weight, you know, weight and, and body type. But the actor they used definitely, uh, they, I mean, it, it was there, but it certainly wasn't when you see the real uh, Leslie Groves with his belt pulled up past his waist yeah. and all that. But it's, so it's, it's interesting that, and, and as you pointed out in the book, Others didn't, people didn't know that he had script approval. It wasn't yeah. just that the scientists didn't give it. They didn't even know that others were getting script approval yeah. on it. Yeah, we should mention that the actor is Brian Denny, who played Leslie Groves, who was a good deal thinner and better better looking. So, yeah, so going back into that, because Groves, the military, and the White House all had script approval, it's not a surprise, obviously, that the film changed so much. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they they basically the uh, even before Groves got at it, it 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 had changed quite a bit because the, you know the studio was, um, you know, Louis B. Mayer was an extreme conservative, um, and um, Hollywood in general was you know contrary to what many people today may think uh, based on today's image, uh, Hollywood was quite conservative at that time. Most of the studio chiefs were Republicans. Um, and so uh, many of the screenwriters and producers and um, and so forth were, were sort of on the right. Um, and so they were, you, you weren't likely to, to 
end up with something that that was uh, as uh, as much of a warning um, as the scientists had originally proposed. Now, um, whether it had to end up as far as it went, uh, that's another matter. But basically, um, even before it got to Groves and Truman, uh, the script had already, you know, become more of a, a pro bomb uh, salute. Um, it, it started out. Um, with the original scripts had had scenes on the ground in Hiroshima, uh, which showed some of the devastation there, showed even like a, a dead baby and things like that. Um, they had uh, victorious generals with a walking tour through Hiroshima, um, seeing some you know nasty things. Uh, it also covered the Nagasaki bombing. You know, it, it didn't. Uh, I don't think they went on the ground there, but um, it was a part of the movie. Um, and then slowly over time, all the scenes on the ground in Hiroshima came out. Um, and Nagasaki isn't, it wasn't even mentioned no. in the final film. <laughs> I mean, it just disappeared <laughs> as if it didn't happen. And it's clear from when you see the correspondence. And like I said, I was able to the first person to go to the Motion Picture Academy library and uh, look through every, uh, you know, I guess virtually every version of the script, dozens of them. Uh, correspondence from studio uh, notes, you know, memos and things like that. And it's clear that uh, the Nagasaki bombing was, um, as it has done for many historians and journalists over the years, it is incredibly troubling. Even if you you support the use of the bomb against Hiroshima, the Nagasaki bombing is, you know, incredibly troubling if you look into it. And so the film... Um, decided just to wipe it off the map, so to speak, and uh, not even have to deal with it. So um, so it's that kind of revealing things. Um, uh, and, and there are just, I mean, you know, numerous things that were added or changed that are very revealing. And I guess I think that's what makes the book interesting in a way. You know, it's, it's, it's not so much the making of the movie, but the unmaking. And the, uh, the kind of details, you know, it's not the usual making of where, People, you know, they talk to some of the actors and there's funny scenes from the set and, you know, uh, people drinking and brawling and things like that. It's not like that at all. It's more of uh, we talk about actual uh, changes uh, in a script and shooting. So there's things like uh, totally made up things such as uh, showing that the, the, the bombers, as they approached Hiroshima, were hit with flack from the ground, you know, endangered. And then the next, then as the script went on, it became heavy flack. Uh, and then it became Japanese fighters off in the distance approaching, perhaps to shoot them down. Uh, and all this is completely made up, uh, but it felt it was necessary to make their, the, the pilots and the, the crew and the whole American mission more heroic, more dangerous. Uh, you know, geez, we look at we did. Uh, we could have all been killed, and um, so. Um, and then there's there's a whole a segment in the book where, uh, again, ratcheting ratcheting that up higher and higher. You know, they introduce. Well, the Americans actually expected the Japanese to greet our troops with atomic, their own atomic bombs, or you know, Japan was building its own bomb and was you know, uh, and that led to a scene in the movie, or at least in the script, where 
uh, Germans who are already about to be defeated, uh, German scientist surfaces off Tokyo in a submarine, comes ashore and tells his Japanese colleague that we're going to help you build, you know, finish building the bomb now and um, to defeat the Americans. And we're going to take you to the, you know, your atomic laboratory, uh, which, you know, of course, was in Hiroshima in the movie. Uh, so, I mean, you couldn't be more blatant than that. Japanese building their own atomic bomb and where else but in Hiroshima. Uh, now, that scene eventually got cut. It was even a bit too much for, for Groves. Uh, but it stayed in for quite a while uh, and eventually was not filmed. So, but, um, and there just are numerous uh, incidents um, that are detailed in the book. Some of them are, I mean, it's kind of humorous or black humor. Um, and, um, and so that kind of shows what was going on, you know, without having to do a big treatise about it. The book is, is very, you know, moves very quickly. It's, it's a, it's a entertaining read in many ways. It doesn't dwell on, it's not theoretical. It's not, uh, uh, doesn't go into the, you know, the, the big treatise on all this, but it just shows through what actually happened, um, what the mindset was at the time. One of the other things that you mentioned early on, but also at the end, and also is something that has become a, a, a belief, uh, and that's the idea that supposedly the United States sent incredible amounts of leaflets down, right. warning everyone that there was going to be this incredible weapon and now right. is their chance to get away, and therefore that almost justifies in some ways that it was okay to do what they did because they gave people plenty of notice. Right, right. Yeah, that's another example. And again, we did. There's, I mean, there's a kernel of truth there. We did drop leaflets, uh, ask, you know, telling people they should ask their government to surrender. You know, um, and uh, and even, uh, but none of them warned of a new weapon or anything like that. And then uh, actually before. Nagasaki, they dropped, um, where they meant they were intended to drop leaflets that were going to warn people specifically of the atomic bomb, but it was delayed and those leaflets were not dropped until the day after <laughs> Nagasaki was destroyed. So, um, like I said, a slight kernel of truth there, but the movie makes it, um, black and white that we, we showered, as they said, millions of leaflets warning people to get out and that, you know, that never happened. The other thing that I wanted to to talk about briefly, you mentioned it earlier, but I, I think it's worth bringing it up because of it, it is an important aspect of, especially early on in the book, is that there was actually another studio working on a version of basically the same story. Obviously, it was at the same time, so I assume they were being developed at least at first in tandem. Uh, what kind of differences were did you see indicate uh, what the differences were going to be, if there were going to be. But also, um, I think what's another one that's important related to the other one is the screenwriter. One of the screenwriters, who, one of the people who was looked at for helping to screenwrite the second one, which is Ayn Rand, who I think even nowadays people recognize the name. So right. uh, Certainly they do. Yeah. What, was, uh, what was going on over there uh, at the other studio? Well, it, it, it was actually Paramount. Hal Wallace was a well-known, very well-known producer. He produced Casablanca and a bunch of other famous movies, and uh, he had a deal at Paramount. And Ayn Rand, who of course had already written the uh, the Fountainhead, which was a bestseller, later became a Gary Cooper movie. 
um, and she was about to write Atlas Shrugged. Um, it was just starting. Uh, but she had also worked for Hal Wallace uh, half of every year for a few years. She'd written two or three screenplays that had been already developed. And so he hired her. You know, he had he had the same idea of doing the, you know, the first atomic bomb movie. Um, and so he hired her and he started his operation at the same time as MGM. And, the, you know, the press, New York Times called it, uh, you know, the first, you know, the atomic race. It was like an arms race. The first atomic arms race was actually uh, on movie studios. And um, and so basically Ayn Rand developed her script. She insisted on interviewing Oppenheimer her, him, her, herself and interviewed him twice, interviewed Groves, uh, and started writing the script, got about 55 pages in. And then, um, and of course, her her views were as reason why some people love her and others hate her today is very extreme, um, uh, anti-socialist, pro-capitalist, pro-individualist, um, you know, on the extreme. Um, and so her script was was basically just, uh, I mean, even more of a salute to the building of the bomb. Uh, individuals had done it and it could only be done in a free society and um you know there was a great just a beautiful future because we'd have all these these brilliant americans and our our capitalist system could build create uh, all sorts of wonderful nuclear things to come um and um but eventually because her script was a little far out and uh because i think wallace saw that uh, mgm was uh, he, he actually made a deal with MGM where he got money from MGM to fold. Uh, it was kind of unusual at the time. The studios would actually cooperate, but basically uh, Paramount folded, and so MGM got the field to themselves. One one of the things we know nowadays with movies, and I want to come up to the the involvement of the of the military. If if you as a filmmaker want to actually use uh, actual military equipment and planes and people, you have to get approval from the government, and that you requires a certain amount. If I don't even know the specifics, whether it's a lot of script approval or entire script approval, but obviously we know in this particular case the military, including Groves, and then also the White House had virtual total script approval. Um, do you know if that was normal during this period or was this movie probably one of the first where the government was able to to control so closely of the making of a motion picture? Yeah. Um, as far as I could find, it was certainly one of the first examples. Of course, in wartime, there's a certain you know, voluntary uh, censorship or voluntary uh, things like that. But you know, there was, uh, as we, uh, as I note in the book, that this the Motion Picture uh, Production Code Office, which had uh, emerged about what 15 years before, um, as kind of the studio's um, censorship, if you will, or guidance to uh, originally keep down the sex in movies. Um, uh, eventually, became you know sex and language and. Uh, sort of anti-Americanism, uh, try to keep that out of movies. So that office was very much um, in operation throughout this period. And I, I show in the 
in the book how that each uh, script was would be submitted to them, and uh, and what they the commentary that came back, which again was often amusing. Um, but at that point, um, the production code office was mainly concerned with, with you know, profanity and sexual situations and uh, things like that. They were not uh, so much. Um, concerned about politics. Um, so it, it was not a, 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 a political censor. Occasionally they did do, uh, they did do some of that. Um, but in the main, they were not that active in, in what you might call political censorship. So the, with this particular movie, it really was the, you know, the military and the white house that were the, you know, the guiding forces and, um, you know, the white house, uh, you know, I guess in some ways the book climaxes in a way when the, you know, the movie is um, finally screened in Washington. Um, it's about two months before it eventually be released, three months. Um, they, um, you know, there's a big Washington screening, all sorts of big muckety mucks there, including the Truman's uh, press secretary, Charlie Ross. Um, and, um, Walter Libman, of course, the much uh, heralded, uh, most famous newspaper columnist of his era, attended, and he was alarmed with how it, it pictured Truman making his decision to use the bomb. And this set off a whole series of, of things which led to the White House being uh, offered to the White House by MGM to basically rewrite uh what would be a retake, complete retake of uh, the key scene where Truman explains his decision to use the bomb. And so that becomes in some ways the, the climax of the whole thing where you have for the, as far again, as far as we know, first time ever uh, White House uh, ordering a retake, uh, basically rewriting uh, or approving a, uh, a rewritten script, revising it by hand, uh, Truman himself being involved. Uh, and so MGM did this major retake of the scene, and um, you know Truman even got the actor playing him fired um, because they thought he didn't have uh, enough military bearing, as they said. And so they had to hire a new actor, even. So I mean, that's pretty going down pretty far when you when you rewrite the script, get a retake, retake, and uh, get the actor fired. Uh, that's it's pretty pretty strong involvement. And if if you watch, when you watch the film, and I say when because I think anybody that's going to read this book is going to want to watch the film, obviously if they haven't seen it already. The scenes with the the Truman actor, and one of the things that's interesting is he's played from behind. You never see his face full on; uh, right. it's always from behind. And you can actually hear dubs throughout. There are times where you can tell that the sound levels go up and down. So clearly, editing, even though this was the retake with the new actor. They yeah. were clearly continuing to do the edit. The big issue with yeah. Truman, and you can correct me, but I think I think I'm right based on what you wrote, is that they wanted to the the, the White House and the film wanted to make you believe that Truman went through a long, hard process to make the decision to go ahead and use the bomb. That it was right. that was something that was a lot of thought process, a lot of consternation, and yet. Afterwards, just about everybody that was involved said, "No, that's not true." Truman pretty much said, "Okay, use it." Yeah, well, that, that's true. There, I mean, there was, uh, you know, there was a committee that was 
uh, in charge of bringing to the White House their, you know, their recommendations. But, um, you know, Truman was bent on using it from the beginning. He never wavered. There's, uh, and Truman himself, you know, afterwards, for right, almost from day one and during the rest of his life, Bragg that he didn't give it much thought that it was such as you know what, what we would call today a slam dunk, um, and um, now whether that was true or not, maybe he did agonize over it. There's no evidence that he did. There's no nothing that he uh, ever really said or, uh, or in his diary um, that that would reflect that. So, but they wanted to show that uh, in the movie that he gave this great thought. He talked to all the leaders around the world. He you know. Uh, pondered it for, for weeks and, and so forth. Um, and that was the important message they wanted to put out. But they, they also wanted to put out the, you know, the reasons, the, the claim that it, it would have saved, uh, you know, a million American lives, uh, that um, there was no way the Japanese would have ever surrendered, um, and, um, and the claim that it was, you know, only used against, uh, you know, military base and cities and not uh, not uh, that mainly civilians uh, died. Um, so it was a way to present the official narrative um, in one short, yeah, rather short scene. Uh, but it was a crucial scene. And uh, uh, and so, uh, like you said, uh, there was really, uh, ed- it was really edited right up to the end. Because, the, for example, um, I mean, I got a copy of the original script that the White House uh, was sent. And in that script, uh, Truman says, uh, uh, Truman overtly says that he'd lost sleep over the decision. Uh, but the White House edited that out, you know. They didn't want any mention that he'd lost sleep over it. And, of course, Truman, probably the most famous line he would say later in describing this was, "He, I never lost any sleep over it, you know. Um, so, you know, that was that was obviously paramount at their time. They wanted to make it look like he, you know, in a very somber way, uh, deeply considered the decision and the ramifications and, and so forth. But on the other hand, they didn't want to make it seem like he was weak, like he was, you know, he lost sleep over it. Yeah, because late, late in the film when they're just about to drop the bomb, they, one of the, somebody makes that, one of the one of the people in the airplane, one of the military um, aviators makes a statement about whether this was the right thing to do. And one of the other characters says, well, nobody thought about that during Pearl Harbor, which, of course, right. has always been one of the major pushbacks whenever this topic is brought up. And uh, so it is uh, interesting that they still made sure that that got into the film as well. Right. Some of the other things, though, that is interesting to me about the film was the need Obviously, since this is a Hollywood production, they had to put a storyline in. They couldn't just – it wasn't a documentary. Right. Uh, so we we have this story. Ba- basically, the the thin story that's there is about this uh, scientist, Matt Cochran, who, of course, right. is totally made up. And uh, um, he, that's the running story throughout the entire film, him and his first fiancé, then wife, and, and so on and so forth. Uh was there any commentary during the making of, or was this just pretty much left that this was the way we were just going to go ahead and put that story in to give it a back, give the whole thing some sort of a backbone? Yeah, well, there's, you know, there are basically two romances. Uh, Groves is, uh, uh, Groves himself is not pictured with a romance, but 
Uh, he has a, age, sec- right. a secretary. Yeah, he has a secretary who gets involved with a uh, colonel. Uh, so that's one romantic storyline. And then there's this young scientist, uh, Matt Cochran, played by a little-known Tom Drake. Um, and he uh, he is, in fact, they, they, they kind of to get permissions from Einstein and Oppenheimer and so forth to be portrayed in the movie, the MGM played up the fact that one of the lead characters was a conscience-stricken young scientist. And indeed, in the movie, this Matt Cochran is the only person who ever raises any concerns about making or using the bomb. And of course, spoiler alert, he dies. <laughs> yeah, well, he... And again, it's all about he has this young kind of dippy wife uh, and, uh, you know, and he's hiding things from her and you know, he can't talk about what he's doing and everything else. But, you know, he raises some he concerns as he goes along. He's not he's, he said, I'm not sure we should be building this military weapon and things like that. It's, it's, a, yeah, it's a small part of the movie, but at least it's there. But then, of course, after all the pressure and so forth, then he. Uh, not only does he end up dying in a nuclear accident, uh, but when he does die, it's he man he saves tens of thousands of lives. Of course, he's on the he's basically arming the Hiroshima bomb on the island Tinian, and uh, something goes wrong, and to, to to save thousands of American lives on the island, he reaches in and is exposed to radiation, uh, and then of course he writes a deathbed. Um, letter to his wife explaining what happened. And, um, and so the movie ends, uh, not with the kind of warnings, uh, of what, um, you know, the, the nuclear path we may be on, not with, um, any, you know, it, it actually kind of says, even though the movie is called the beginning or the end, it kind of, uh, says this, this is actually the beginning of a great, what will be a great new atomic age, not not the end of man, uh, as many feared, but it comes out, it comes down on the side of the beginning, you might say. And Matt Cochran's letter to his wife is all about the, it's going to be a utopia, and you know, the energy of an atom will power this and solve this, and you know, cure crime, uh, cure cancer, and everything else. So it, it ends on this kind of sappy message that goes against everything that even this one uh, character who had a conscience had been warning about throughout. Suddenly he's a convert, even though he died. Um, he's the only American who died in the, you know, right. with the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, and yet he's, uh, you know, he's, he's happy to, uh, happy to move on in the future. So, um, of course, I guess that's a spoiler alert. I yeah, I sort of said it, and I said, <laughs> but I think anybody is, you know, I I just felt I could see almost, it was interesting, you, you sort of, if you know anything about the period, for example, I still found it to be very sappy that we have FDR just getting ready to write Harry Truman about the bomb, but then he dies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Before he gets yeah. a chance. That, that yeah. same day that he dies, he was about to write that letter, and then he didn't. Yeah. So it yeah. was there was a lot of that kind of thing throughout the film. So what then was the reaction when the film comes out? I mean, obviously, uh, that's a good portion of the latter part of the book, but uh, we know right at the beginning, in fact, your foreword shows, a, it creates a scene where some of the scientists actually see the film for the first time. But then at the end, 
when the film came out, what kind of reaction did it get? Well, you know, some people have, uh, the, the few people who have ever written about this movie, um, you know, will say, oh, it got panned and, uh, you know, it was a flop and everything else, where we're actually the reviews were very mixed. Uh, and um, uh, and it did, you know, it, it lost money, but it, you know, it did, did a certain certain amount of decent box office. Uh, but um, it was certainly a disappointment, but I think, uh, uh, you know, it was not the out and out you know, uh, laughing stock that people picture it as. And uh, in fact, the New York Times uh, review, you know, sort of praised it in many ways, you know, many areas and then said, you know, it, it also doesn't take, doesn't treat the audience uh, like they can take a really serious story all the way. Um, it got praise in a lot of other places, but, you know, the Time magazine, Life, Life had an absolutely hysterical, I mean, this was, it was sort of classic Life magazine did a lavish five-page uh, photo spread on the on the movie, but in every way, in the text and the captions, just mocked it. Um, so, uh, but that's a little misleading because that was not the average response. But there were there were certainly some savage uh, critiques and some uh, and some praise. So, but you know, basically, it it did not have the the kind of most important movie ever that Louis B. Mayer had pictured it as. And, um, but you know, it had a decent life and, uh, it was revived a few times. And, um, and, but you know, the point I, I make at the end of the book is, uh, and I then trace kind of other films on the subject. Uh, and, and as you said, there have, there would eventually be, you know, some quite terrific, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you want to call them anti-nuclear, but uh, movies such as Dr. Strangelove, such as Failsafe, uh, The War Game, um, all sorts of movies that um, looked at nuclear issues uh, in a kind of a warning way. Um, but in terms of picturing the actual creation of the bomb and, and dropping the bomb on Japan, um, yeah, just America uh, cinema has never come to grips with it. Um, there was a movie several years after this movie, um, also by MGM, that used some of the same footage, actually, um, about the pilot, Paul Tibbetts, who I actually interviewed myself years later, um, uh, called Above and Beyond with Robert Taylor. Um, and But that basically said the same thing. You know, this was a decision that had to be made, and it was great we had the bomb, and, you know... Um, and then it wasn't taken up again for for decades. Um, the, the movie, um, right, I guess, is the early '90s, "Fat Man and Little Boy," right? Um, with Paul Newman. I mean, it was the casting told you all you had to know, and that Paul Newman was Groves, and this unknown Dwight Schultz was Oppenheimer. Now, the director Roland Joffe intended it to be more of a anti-nuclear movie, but by the time the studio got through with it, and, and, and partly because of the casting, Newman was so strong that it, it most people saw it as uh, at best a confusing, conflicted uh, a movie about the, the making and using of the bomb. So, It's real quickly, it was funny earlier in the book where you talked about um, that uh, Groves' wife wanted Clark Gable to play Grove in in right. Groves in this movie. So it is sort of an interesting, as you pointed out, juxtaposition of who ends up finally playing him many, many yeah. years later, Paul Newman. 
yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but that's you know, uh, you know, there was a, a a movie that I actually was uh, uh, I wouldn't say a consultant, but I was asked to weigh in on. Um, also in 1995, uh, called uh, it was a TV docudrama called Hiroshima, um, and uh, actually Ed Asner's son was was sort of behind it. Um, and it was a big event. I think it was Showtime, and um, it was well done in many many ways. Um, but again, it sort of ends up on the side of you know it's a great thing we built the bomb, great thing we used it, you know, end of the war and everything else. So um, you know, to this date. Um, you know, there's never been a, a really uh, a, anything from Hollywood or from national TV that has kind of raised the kind of profound questions or uh, critiques that we found right going back to that first letter to uh, to Donna Reed. And of course, going back to even before that, the letter that I that uh, um, um, Einstein writes to FDR, which actually starts the whole thing. Yeah. So. Uh, two letters that uh, each had their uh, impact. I one other thing, and I thought it would. You know, we were talking about reactions, and you know, related to this. But uh, what I f- found so much in watching the film is that you can almost see as it goes where people would be likely to be disagreed. You know, and unhappy with the way it's portrayed. I can imagine what the. I know you, you present information from the scientists and their reaction. I can only imagine once it was done, and you talk a little bit about that at the beginning um, and at the end about the, the scientists who pushed for this and, and what they ended up uh, experiencing once it was done. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we never, there's never, uh, never been recorded what Oppenheimer's reaction might have been. Um, but uh, there's a, a great deal in the book about his, his agony over... Uh, signing this agreement and he meets with Sam Marks, the producer, and they go over things. And it's just, in a way, it's classic Oppenheimer. You know, he's one of the most fascinating figures in our, our history. Um, and the, this, if, if you read the book and see all, just, just of all the interesting things about him and contradictory things and everything else, just his back and forth on this movie and how much he should be involved. Um, uh, uh, eventually caving, you know, and going along with it. It's just classic Oppenheimer. And, uh, uh, but unfortunately he, there's no record of what he, if he saw it even, and what his reaction was. I know he was invited to the uh, premiere in Washington and did not attend, but, uh, beyond that, we don't really know what his, uh, response was. Well, this is a, a great book. Uh, of a, for a film that I hope people, besides just reading the book, it's definitely a film worth reaching out and seeing if you can find it. Uh, as you point out, Turner, TC, Turner Classic Movies has the rights to it. They show it occasionally. Um, they also you can buy the DVD through them and also other places. And uh, the beginning or the end is the book How Hollywood Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Sort of an interesting juxtaposition when we talk about Dr. Strangelove as well. Um, so uh, I really appreciated all the time you gave me, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for great success for the book because it's definitely, as you pointed out, with the 75th anniversary coming up, uh, it's definitely a topic that still deserves as much uh, publicity and thought, thought and writing that, that we're getting. Well, thank, thanks for all that, and uh, thanks for having me here. Thank you. Thanks to Greg Mitchell for the conversation. 
Greg is an important voice in the continuing discussion of the historical and sociological implications of the bomb, and I hope you watch the beginning or the end, read Greg's book, and keep up with his continued writing. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.